Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For every program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting in the study of Islam, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Aisha Chaudhry about her great new book, Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition, Ethics, Law, and the Muslim Discourse on Gender, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. How do people make sense of their scriptures when they do not align with the way they envision these texts? This problem is faced by many contemporary believers and is especially challenging in relation to passages that go against one's vision of gender egalitarian cosmology. Aisha Chaudhry examines one such passage from the Quran, verse 434, which has traditionally been interpreted to give husbands disciplinary rights over their wives, including hitting them. Chaudhry offers a historical genealogy of pre-colonial and post-colonial interpretations of this verse and their implications. Through her presentation, she offers portraits of the Islamic tradition and how these visions of authority shape participants' readings of scripture. In our conversation, we discuss the ethics of discipline, idealized cosmologies, marital relationships, legal interpretations, Muhammad's embodied model, Muslim feminist discourses, effects of colonialism, and the hermeneutical space between modernity and tradition. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome. Today I have the pleasure of not only speaking with my guest, but actually sitting in her presence. Welcome, Aisha Chaudhry. Thank you very much for Thank having you. me, Christian Peterson. Thank you for speaking with us about your wonderful new book, uh, Domestic Violence in the Islamic Tradition, Ethics, Law, and the Muslim Discourse on Gender. Now, this is a really wonderful book. I think uh, lots of people both in the field of Islamic studies and out will benefit from this uh, for, for lots of reasons. Um, but before we get into that, can you give us a little sense of how you got interested in the study of Islam, perhaps uh, people that have been influential in how you approach the topic or questions that you're concerned with? Um, that's a great question. I got interested in the study of Islam. I grew up in uh, Canada as a South Asian Muslim Canadian, and um, and I sort of like was grew up uh, balancing these multiple identities. And I was always very interested in Islam. Uh, I was grew up in a very religious household, and um, so it was sort of a natural natural interest for me. When I was an undergraduate, uh, doing my undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I started out with doing a double major in political science and philosophy. But I soon realized that the topics that most interested me were related to religion. And so for my master's, I did um, I worked on Islamic studies in the Near Eastern Studies Department and in women's studies. And that's where I came across the work of Muslim female scholars like Amina Wadud and Asma Barlas and Ziba Mir Husseini. Um, and I was just really inspired by the example of these women who were taking, uh, who were talking about Islam from a feminist perspective and promoting women's rights through an Islamic paradigm. And so I became very interested in that. And that's what I ended up doing my PhD in at NYU. Now, uh, in the book specifically, you're very explicit about how your own kind of personal background and lots of the questions you've had growing up uh, became kind of the basis for this project. Can you give us a little detail of kind of the the questions you were asking, uh, how this kind of uh, developed throughout your your childhood, and then when that moment that this actually turned into some, to, to a project that you uh, were creating as a book. Okay, um, so I so growing up as a Muslim, I read the Quran in Arabic uh, as a child, but I but um, as 
as many people know, that most Muslims are not Arab. And so even though we learn to read the Quran as children, that doesn't mean we actually understand Arabic or know what we're reading. And so um, this book, the entire book project is based on one verse in the Quran that is found in chapter four, verse 34. And it's a verse that I first encountered in its translation when I was in ninth grade. I was at a mosque uh, bookstore after a Friday prayer, and I saw this Quran that looked really cute. <laughs> it was tiny. It had gold gold edging. It had translation. I bought it because it looked awesome. And so I bought it, and I started reading it from the beginning. And I came upon chapter 4, verse 34, and it really disturbed me. And the verse, uh, the translation, the standard translation for the verse is that uh, men are in authority over women because God has preferred some over others and because they spend of their wealth. Righteous women are obedient and guard in their husband's absence what God would, ha- what God would have them guard. As for those women on whose part you fear disobedience, admonish them, abandon them in bed, and hit them. If they obey you, then do not seek a means against them. And so I read this verse and I was really troubled by it. And initially I wasn't troubled by it because I was concerned, shamefully, I was not concerned for the for Muslim women, for their well-being. I was concerned instead about how this translation made Muslims look. I was worried that Muslims would look bad. Like, I mean, Christians and, Muslims and Jews would read this translation and they would think that Muslims were okay with husbands hitting their wives. And the Islam that I grew up with, I did not believe that about, I did not believe that to be true about Islam. So, um, so that's what initially troubled me about the verse. And then as I grew older, I witnessed situations where, um, like in the mosque, uh, in mosque settings, where women would complain about their husbands hitting them and they would ask, you know, is there a verse in the Quran that says that my husband's allowed to hit me? And if there is, would I be sinning if I called the police on my husband? Um, or I would hear imams, when women complained about being hit, I would hear them say, you know, well, what did you do like to upset him? Um, or they would say, you know, well, he can hit you, but not really. Like, he's not actually allowed to leave an imprint or a bruise. Um, or they would say to husbands, you're allowed to hit your wife. That is your right. But, you know, the prophet didn't, and it's better to opt out. So I became troubled by the fact that I didn't hear a categorical rejection of an interpretation of this verse that permitted violence against women. And so I started looking for that. I started asking different imams and different scholars, you know, what do you think this verse means? Are there nonviolent interpretations of this verse? And I would get sort of like these roundabout answers that involved, you know, that basically asked me to have more humility and not ask questions that were troublesome. And secondly, um, that invoked the tradition in this like um, nebulous way where the tradition was brought to bear on making me more humble. So like the tradition was full of these luminaries, these amazing people with, you know, encyclopedic memories and extreme piety and you know, um, commitment to social justice. And they would have never allowed something that was abusive or misogynistic to exist in our tradition. And if the tradition is pure and perfect and wonderful, and if I studied the tradition, I would learn more about how wonderful this tradition was and how many interpretations there were. But when I was doing my master's at the University of Toronto and reading the works of women like Amina Wadud and Asma Barlas, I saw that for the first time, I encountered nonviolent interpretations of this verse. They read this verse in a way that did not permit violence against women. And I was perplexed as to why these interpretations had not been 
taken like just sort of taken in wholesale by the mainstream Muslim community because it offered a way to deal with this verse that did not permit violence against women. And um, so that that was a question that actually got me really interested in thinking about the intellectual history of this verse. Like, what is what did Muslims think about this verse in the pre-modern period? And how has it, how has Muslim thinking developed around this verse over the centuries? And is the conversation that Muslims are having about this verse the same as the conversation that happened in the pre-modern period, or is it a new conversation? And if it's new, why is it new? What's going on that's making this conversation new? So those are the questions that I explore in the book. So one of the things I really liked about the book, and I think a lot of people will benefit from, is um, is the way you uh, kind of complicate this idea of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I'm wondering if you could talk about um, how these debates about what the tradition is and how we interpret it in the contemporary day, um, why did they become so complicated? What's at stake for the people you're talking to? Okay, so... The way the tradition is used in the in, in in religious conversation in every religious conversation, but right now we're talking about this particular conversation, the Muslim conversation around verse four thirty four, is very complicated. I mean, the the tradition is sort of drawn upon in this like abstract, nebulous way, without any specific content being given to that tradition. The tradition evokes a time before colonialism, when when Muslims had power and empire, and things were great, and. After colonialism, everything becomes, you know, um, before it was pure and pristine, and then it becomes corrupt and tainted. And so that was a theme that I consistently ran up against. Um, And so, like, for example, you know, like, as I was mentioning earlier, the discussion of the character of the scholars in the past and how amazing they were. So when I decided to look at what does the Islamic tradition say about 434, I had to sort of define it. So I defined it in a few ways. I looked at it. um, So I looked at sources that would talk about this verse. So the first obvious source to look at is Quran commentaries, because Quran commentaries actually went through every single verse of the Quran, and they would try to explain them and provide an exegesis for that verse. So 434 would get discussed in every Quran commentary. So that was an easy one to go to. The second source I looked at was um, Islamic legal sources, because I was interested to see whether this verse had legal implications, if it was institutionalized in any way in the law, and how laws around domestic violence were uh, framed. And so that so that was the second uh, source that I looked at. And I looked in the... And then the third way that I limited tradition, the contours of the tradition, was by looking at the pre-colonial period. Because what I noticed in all of the conversations about the tradition was that it was, everything was before, it would always evoke a time before colonialism. And colonialism started in different countries, in different, you know, regions at different times. So I looked at sources from the 9th century, so printed sources from the 9th century to the 16th century is where I limited it. So it could stop so I was stopping well before the advent of colonialism in most places. And then I looked at uh, Arabic sources, because even though Muslims spoke many languages, of course, throughout the empires, um, Arabic was a language of the scholarly elite, and they all, and many, many, most scholars wrote in Arabic, even if they were Persian or, you know, from any other region of the world. So they would still write in Arabic or Spain or wherever. Um, so that's how I limited the pre-modern sources. That's how I defined what the tradition meant in that period. And in the modern period, though, I had to expand things dramatically. So in the modern period, I looked in the post-colonial period, I looked at the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, And I looked at 
Arabic sources because that's still the language of the scholarly elite. I looked at English because that's a new global language. And I looked at sources in Urdu because it, Urdu is spoken or understood by over 500 million people, uh, making it the largest Islamic hate language. So it gives a good sense of region, um, Basically, I was looking at sources that would give us a good sense of like time span and also of like ge- vast geographic areas. And in the modern period, the distinction between Quran commentaries and legal works is much more blurred because in the modern period, Muslims are not writing in general, are not writing the kinds of commentaries, the, the encyclopedic works that were written in the pre-colonial period. Um, and so, and then I also looked at web sources and so any text that was available and also audio, audio sources. So looking at, uh, religion, like sort of Friday sermons and things like that. And I also looked in the modern period at scholarly sources as well as activist sources, uh, because for the first time in Muslim history, women are part of the conversation around religion and around gender and religion in particular. And so that was a really exciting development. And so it was really wonderful to be able to include those voices in the conversation. So that's how I, um, that's how I divided up my sources. But I think your question was about the tradition. I can, I can rephrase it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so in this discussion, uh, of tradition, um, your quest to find a categorical, no, it's mm-hmm. never okay. Right. Um, there's this implicit, uh, relationship between the tradition mm-hmm. and authority. Right. So, in the book, you very clearly talk about kind of the, the relationship between these two mm-hmm. and, and what's at stake for people uh, in the contemporary age, right? Right, right. Whether they're taking traditional perspectives or they're taking more progressive right. perspectives, what that relationship right. is. So because, okay, right. So because the tradition is pristine and perfect and uncorrupted, um, what I, you know, it's important for modern Muslims to find, uh, like to sort of root, like the pre-modern tradition has a lot, or the pre-colonial tradition has a lot of authority in modern Muslim discourse because of this, uh, because of the experiences of colonialism. And so, Whenever progressive reformist Muslims come up with new conversation, new positions in Islam, or sort of advocate for a new way of thinking about something, an issue, um, a really good strategy is to root that position in the pre-modern or the pre-colonial tradition and say, "Well, actually, you know what? This is a minority opinion in this in this legal school, or this is a minority opinion, or or this is an opinion that this person, Ibn Hazm, held, or Thabari held, or whoever might have held it." That's a really convenient way to, that's a very good strategy for arguing for a new, uh, like a th- rethinking or thinking anew about a particular issue, because then what you're saying is that this position isn't entirely new and therefore corrupted by the experiences of colonialism and westernization, yada, yada, yada. Um, and you can relocate it to something before that. And so... Um, the problem with anyone who is looking for a gender egalitarian position in a patriarchal tradition, so this is true for Islam, but it's also true, of course, for Judaism, Christianity, and any other religion that was rooted in a patriarchal social and historical context, is that that position does not exist in the pre-colonial period. And when I started out the study, I kind of expected it to be there. I expected, I had sort of bought into the myth of these, you know, these amazing human beings who were committed to social justice, even if it was against their own time. But I realize now that that was very naive. I mean, how could I expect those people to belong less fully to their time and place than I belong to mine? So in retrospect, that was a naive 
Um, that was, it was naive that I was looking for that. But at any rate, it was because I was naive. It was very dis, it was, you know, a very, a moment of deep disappointment when I realized that having looked at hundreds of sources in the pre-colonial period, spanning vast geographic regions and centuries, not a single scholar said, you know what? Never okay to hate your wife under any circumstance, the end, because it's immoral and wrong. Never said that. And that really bothered me because modern scholars, Muslim feminists, were trying to make the argument that it was never acceptable to hit your wife. And that was an unjust thing to do. And so I realized that, so, the, so, so, and so this is a problem that exists for the interpretations of this verse, but it's obviously a larger problem that exists for religious feminists everywhere. And, um, so, and so I, so I was dismayed by that, but I was really invigorated to find out that in the modern period or in the contemporary period, Muslims were having really rich, complex, varied conversations about this issue. But, and tradition was an important part of that conversation. So I I think I, I, I talk about this in terms of the egalitarian authoritarian dilemma, which is that if you want to root, if you want to have authority in the religious community, you want to be able to root your position in the pre-colonial period somehow. Um, if you cannot do that, then you lose authority in the very community you're trying to reform. And so Muslim scholars who are advocating for gender egalitarian visions of Islam are sort of caught in this catch-22, where they want to reform the community, they want to reform, they want to advocate for gender egalitarianism in a way that influences the Muslim community, but they're kind of stuck because authority in the community is granted to those who can root their positions in the pre-colonial period. And so in some ways, the argument of the book is to argue for shifting who we give authority to and really give Muslims more choices in terms of who they are willing to give authority to. One more kind of book process Uh question. Uh, So this is a really controversial topic, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, and you've given us a little here, uh, a sense of how personally you were frustrated at times, disappointed mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. Were there challenges in making this book that you did not expect? Hurdles that mm-hmm. you thought might have been uh, unnecessary or challenges uh, to why you would even write this book? Right. Well, okay, so in many ways, the quest of this book was to answer the questions of the 14-year-old version of myself and to tell her there are other ways of thinking about this verse and that Muslims think about this verse in a nonviolent way and to let her be a believer that belonged to the religious community, the Muslim community, and maintain gender egalitarian values to, to be both of those things with dignity. That's what, I, that's what the project, like in, some, in many ways, was about. Um, but... You know, I live in a larger, I live in a a world where the geopolitics of the day mean that Islam is highly politicized. um, And Muslims in particular, especially minorities, are under increased scrutiny. So, you know, um, over 20 states in the U.S. have passed anti-Sharia laws because they're worried about the Sharia creeping into the legislative systems. Um, People, when they protest Islamophobic protests, they will usually make comments about Muslims being wife beaters. Um, So these were issues that obviously I had to sort of deal with because I'm not writing in a vacuum. I'm writing as part of, as a citizen of this, of of Canada, um, this nation state, but also a citizen of the world. Um, And I had to sort of, I really struggled with that about whether this was a good idea to talk about this in a book and to just put it out there. 
even though I did also feel that it was a really important intra-Muslim conversation to have. And in the end, I think I had to decide, I did decide that, um, I didn't. I don't feel that our that my research agenda sh- or anyone's research agenda should be tailored or defined by small-minded bigots who are going to hate Islam no matter what. And I don't think this book will give them more ammunition than they already have. Um, but I do think it's an important conversation because it really captures the diversity of voices present within Muslims. Muslims have different opinions about this verse, and it puts those voices, not only draws them out, teases them out, but puts them in conversation with each other and tries to understand what is at stake for these people. Why are they making the arguments that they're making? And why are they not making a different argument? Like, what's what's going on here? So I thought that that was really important. But, you know, I have had all sorts of annoying reactions to the book, right? Like the people who are who feel like I'm airing dirty laundry and have told me straight out that they hate what I'm doing. Um, and then other people who are just, you know, think that I'm courageous without really knowing what I'm doing, uh, which is uh, a fetishization of its own kind. And so I, I, yeah, I just, I feel like I don't respond to those, those, play, I can't respond to those, play, those, those positions because it's not where I'm coming from and it's not what I'm doing. And both of those places, those both of those positions, in many ways, come from a deep misunderstanding of what I'm actually doing. Well, let's figure out what you are doing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of opening up the book, you give us the various contexts mm-hmm. that 434 sits in. Right. Um, can you kind of outline some of those contexts that you think are important for understanding this verse? Okay, so I think I look at three contexts, right? I, th- I look at the historical, like the Asbab and Nizul, the context of Revelation. I look at the textual context, and I look at um, the cosmological context. Yes, okay. So I'm just trying to remember what I, what I, what I do in the book. Okay. So the interesting thing about the okay, so the interesting thing about the textual context, thinking about four thirty four and the context, the textual context in which it appears, I like that section because I get to play a little bit with hermeneutics and to talk to show my readers that each verse, like I look, I think a set of verses that are around four thirty four, like maybe five or six verses, that each of these verses can be read differently for. And they can be read actually in opposing ways. So that 434 has two different meanings, at least, if not more meanings. So there's a range of meanings. And that what I'm trying to show in that section is that what you're looking for determines what you find in the text. So it sort of, I open the book with this, trying to encourage my readers to take responsibility for their own interpretations, but also to show them that when people choose interpretations or when they read an interpretation of of the Quran or a translation of the Quran, that that's an active like the reader is an active participant in that process. And then the second part about the historical context is really interesting because we actually, I mean, of course, don't have any historical proof for whether this incident happened or not, but nevertheless, this is the story that exegetes give for why this verse was revealed. And the story is a really interesting one because um, it challenges many of the modern or prevalent notions about what this verse is actually doing, whether it's restricting wife beating or whether it's giving husbands license to hit their wives. Um, the verse, it, there's there's two separate stories about this verse. One is that um, uh, the prophet's wife, Um Salama, comes to the prophet and she's upset about their share, the shares in inheritance and other gender inequalities. And what I like about this this story is that even if it didn't originate in the prophet's time, even if it's not an accurate rec- representation of what's actually happen- happening in 7th century Arabia, it's definitely a representation of what someone's thinking is happening within 150 years to 200 years of Muhammad's death. So 
as early as like the late, what the eighth and ninth century, people are wondering, like people have these questions. These are not new modern questions that never existed. Gender equality is an issue that is getting dealt with really early on in the sources. And, um, and so according to this interpretation, according to this, co- t- this context, the purpose of 434 is to explain why husband, why men rank over women and why husbands rank over wives. But the second story, so that's like the focus, the legal focus of that verse. But in the second story, the story in this story, a woman, uh, sometimes unnamed, sometimes named, uh, comes to the prophet and says that she's been, her husband slapped her and that she wants retribution. And again, this is a really great story because regardless of when, what time periods it is, is recording, again, we know that in the very early centuries, this is an issue that the Muslim community is dealing with and they're talking about and they, and that this woman comes to Muhammad asking for retribution. She expects him to support her, um, either because of his character or his behavior or because this was a law in the pre-Islamic context. So for whatever reason, she's expecting retribution. And in some stories, like there's various narrations of it. And in some narrations, she comes with like a slap on her face. There, the marks are still on her face. But anyway, so she comes to the prophet. She complains about her husband hitting her. She expects retribution. And the prophet says, you get retribution. Great story. If it, and then it would be great if it stopped there, but it continues. So the story says, so it, he, she, he says, you get retribution. And then in some cases, like he's sort of in the process of making that decision. But in others, she actually leaves to get retribution um, from the, she leaves to get retribution from the prophet. Uh, she leaves from her husband and he calls her back and he says, and he says, um, you know, this decision is nullified, like, because this verse has been revealed and the verse permits husbands to hit their wives. And so because of this verse, the decision gets nullified and the prophet says, I wanted one thing and God wanted another. And then later narrations sort of uncomfortable with that tension between Muhammad actually expressing potentially a disagreement with God. They add this additional phrase that says, I wanted one thing, God wanted another, and what God wanted is best. So it's a really um, important ethical moment from the Muslim community when they're thinking about this verse, is to think of this historical context and to think of this woman who actually has been hit by her husband, this tangible case case study, um, expects retribution, gets retribution, and then that decision is nullified. So it's a, it's a really important moral, moral moment. And then the final context that I look at is, um, the cosmological context. And what I noticed when I was reading the pre-colonial sources and the post-colonial sources is that these, both the writers were looking for different things in the verse. And they were looking for different things because they had different expectations of what a just God would, um, would prescribe. And in the, what I found in the pre-colonial context is that the reason that all of these scholars, like hundreds of scholars over centuries in geographic regions, like they have many reasons to disagree about this, their interpretation of this verse, but the reason that they don't, and they actually all, none of them problematize the right of husbands to hit their wives, is because um, they all were committed to the same worldview, the, the same cosmology, the same ordering of the universe. And in this ordering of the universe, There is a hierarchy where God sits atop a a hierarchy followed by men, followed by women. And women please God by pleasing their husbands, and they displease God when they displease their husbands. So their salvation is very closely connected to 
pleasing or displeasing their husbands. I mean, there's actually like, and, and, and the exegetes and the legal, the jurists spoke about this extremely comfortably. They were not like troubled by this. They were very open about this. And so I look at the way they talk about the ordering of the universe in their interpretations of 434 in the, in the Quran commentaries. And I think that it's really important to do that because it really highlights to contemporary Muslims the worldview that these scholars are writing from, the cosmology that they espouse, and how that cosmology is completely different than the modern cosmology. So that's a patriarchal cosmology, or the, uh, the patriarchal idealized cosmology. This is how the world should work in their mind. In the contemporary period, there's a new idealized cosmology. And in this cosmology, Muslims believe that there's still a hierarchy where God sits atop the hierarchy, followed by husbands and wives on an equal playing field, with independent relationships to God. And in this framework, it makes no sense for husbands to have any disciplinary power over their wives, never mind being allowed to hit them. Whereas in a patriarchal cosmology, your rights and responsibilities are linked to your status, to your ranking. So if, if, so husbands are also responsible for um, maintaining like the moral order and they're responsible for ma- for the moral oversight of their wives. And it makes sense to give them disciplinary tools so that they can keep their wives in line. And so because the idealized cosmology has shifted expectations of what, of, of what a just God would do to maintain this different idealized cosmology have shifted. Now you, you mentioned a few times mm-hmm. that uh, uh-huh. you, you didn't find a single case of, uh, any pre-colonial mm-hmm. exegete saying this is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you do have a very kind of extended conversation about how they felt about these various interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if you can give us an idea of uh, of how commentators were making sense of this, uh, mm-hmm. their ability to, to have uh, disciplinary rights over their wives. So in the pre-colonial period, they were the scholars were not troubled by their husbands having a, having disciplinary rights over their wives. They felt like it made sense because if the universe was structured so that God has and men and then women, it made sense for husbands to discipline their wives when they were out of line. And so when they their their ethical discussions around this verse were about procedure rather than about whether a husband should have this right or not. They didn't ask that question. They were like, well, they have the right. The question is, how do they apply this right? And so they would, you know, and this is where there was a difference of opinion among scholars. They would say, you know, husbands can, can they whip them? Some of them said yes. Some of them said no. Can they hit them with a stick? Some of them said yes, some no. If they could whip them, could they whip them like three to 10 times, less than 40 times, or less than 80 times? That's what that discussion looked like. Could they kick them? Could they punch them? Could they hit them with sandals? And here, like, you know, scholars took every position on the spectrum. Yes, no, in between, some, somewhere in between. Um, and these conversations sound really unethical to contemporary Muslims. But if we think about these conversations in the context of an idealized cosmology, they may begin to make a lot more sense. I mean, if it, if it makes sense for husbands to have disciplinary rights over their wives, then the issue of procedure is a really important one. If it makes no sense for husbands to have the right to discipline their wives, then it makes no sense to have, then these conversations sound terrible. They sound like they're very unethical. And that's why the cosmology has shifted. The idealized cosmology has shifted. And that's why uh, Muslims have, contemporary Muslims might have that sort of a reaction to those discussions. Um, now, uh, outside of the, the primary source text, you look at uh, kind of the legal tradition. Mm-hmm. And 
you you found different things when you looked at uh, kind of the discourses mm-hmm. coming from the uh, four major schools. Can you kind of outline where some of these differences uh, were panning out? Mm-hmm. So once again, um, you know, the four legal schools were all like no, but none of the four legal schools have a categorical like prohibition for husbands hitting their wives. And in fact, four thirty four in in all of the schools was the major source text for permitting not only husbands to hit their wives, but parents to hit children and masters to hit slaves. So, I mean, Ziba Mir Husseini has described 434 as the DNA of patriarchy in Islamic law. And she's very much right about that because the sources bear that out, especially with regard to discussions of 434 in legal texts. Um, the, dis- the differences come in, the, the one, I mean, there's many like interesting differences that I talk about in the book, but one that I'll talk about right now is the Shafari school is a particularly interesting one because in the Shafari school, um, the, the position of the school is that it is better, it's preferred for husbands to not hit their wives. So even though husbands, the, hitting husbands is a basic marital right and that they can hit them potentially up to 80 times in the school, it's better if they don't hit them. And and I explore that in a lot of detail in this chapter because it, because I'm interested to see where this concern comes from. Like, why are they advocating for this position that seems more progressive to us? Um, and it turns out it's not for the... It's, the position doesn't come from a concern for women so much as it does about... Come from a concern for harmonizing prophetic practice with a command of God. So... In addition to the story that I just mentioned to you about Habiba and coming to the Prophet with a slap on her face, which figures very strongly in even the legal text, the Shafi'i legal text, um, the second place that this, the the second story that's really important for the Shafi'is is the story where um, there's a report where, where, in some cases, the narration begins with Muhammad prohibiting husbands from hitting their wives, and in some cases, it doesn't begin with that. But in either case. You know, there's like Muhammad expresses some sort of displeasure about husbands hitting their wives. In one case, he actually prohibits it outright. And then the Meccan and um, and and Omar comes to the Prophet and dis- and sort of like petitions him to change his position. He either petitions him to change his position or to allow husbands to hit their wives. And he has this whole thing about how in Mecca, you know, the men sort of like they carried around sticks and their women were like sheep and they obeyed them. But then they come to Medina. And they begin. They begin to. Um, they mingle with the Medinan women, who are more uppity than Meccan women. And then they sort of like start. They start talking back, and they start misbehaving. And so Omar comes to the Prophet and says, "Permit us to hit our wives." And Muhammad says, "Okay." And so then one of two things happens: either there's a loud commotion, and Muhammad hears it. It's so loud that he hears it, and he says, "What's going on?" And People say to him, well, you said that husbands could hit their wives. Or it is that these women, over 70 women, I mean, that's obviously an idiomatic expression, but these women surround Muhammad's house and complaining against their husbands hitting them. And so Muhammad says, you know, in in the second version, he says, the house of Muhammad was surrounded by 70 women complaining that their husbands hit them. Those of you who hit your wives were not the best, are not the best of men. So that's a very interesting hadith because it starts with a prohibition against hitting from Muhammad. Then he says, you can hit your wife. And then he ends with those of you who hit your wives were not the best of men. So which is not a categorical rejection. And so this hadith stands in contrast to 434 and the Shafi's were really troubled by the disagreement here. And so they tried to, there are many ways that they could have harmonized it and they chose to harmonize it by 
making um, the command in 434, instead of thinking of it as a prescription, as a command, they interpreted that as a permission. And then they said that it was better for husbands to follow the prophetic example, which was to not hit his wife or to discourage husbands from hitting their wives. That's great. You want to leave a little... Right, leave a little in the book so they yeah. have a lot of mind, right? <laughs> exactly. Don't want to give them everything. <laughs> so, um, moving to kind of the the post colonial period, uh, which is really interesting. To this part of the book, um, you lay out uh, kind of a four part um, categorization, which you know you state explicitly. This isn't you know hard and fast, but these are helpful for us yeah. to understand things. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, lay out kind of ha- how these categories uh, both are similar to each other, mm-hmm. um, and, but then where they differ. Right. Okay, yeah, so these are not hard and fast categories. I just sort of put them there because I was looking, at, again, at hundreds of sources, and I was trying to find a way to organize them in a way that was sensible. So I organized the sources into four categories, traditionalist, neo-traditionalist, uh, progressive, and reformist. And I divided them into these categories based on the way they answered three questions. So the first question is, is it ever ethically good to hit your wife? So that's a yes or no answer. So you, either you say yes, a scholar says yes to this, or they say no to this. Um, the second question is whether they ultimately privilege a patriarchal cosmology over an egalitarian one or vice versa. So which, uh, which uh, egali- is the patriarchal cosmology privileged or the egalitarian one? What is the vision of the, co- the cosmos that the scholar is trying to um, promote and where and what is a what is a relationship of men and women to each other in this co- in this cosmos so that's the second question and then the third one is what role does the tradition play in supporting this position so do does a scholar rely entirely on the authority of the tradition to make this to argue their case or do they not mention the tradition at all? Like does the tradition figure in at all? And if it does, in what way? So are they comfortable disagreeing with the tradition or are they relying on the tradition to provide the answer that they're, that they're promoting? So, um, so that's how I divided scholars into the four categories. And I mean, so in general, like just to to make sure we keep a little for the book, um, in, in general, traditionalist and neo-traditionalist scholars, uh, 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 say that there is a space for husbands to hit their wives. It's that, that is ethically good. Right. So traditionalist scholars are much more comfortable with husbands hitting their wives. Um, and in fact, I looked at one scholar who even argued that there should be no limitations at all that on husbands hitting their wives because the Quranic text doesn't offer any limitations on it. Um, and then in the neo-traditionalist category, scholars are much more uncomfortable saying yes to, is it ever ethically good for husbands to hit their wives? But they feel compelled to say yes, nevertheless. And the reasons for why they feel compelled to do that are what I explore in that section. Um, and then uh, they both rely on the tradition to make the point that they're making. In the case of, uh, and so that's, so that's pretty straightforward. And then the third thing is they both ultimately privilege a patriarchal cosmology, although neo-traditionalist scholars try to, try to um, remove the distance between a patriarchal and egalitarian cosmology, portraying them as more harmonious than they are, when in fact they're mutually exclusive. And then in the progressive and reformist categories, um, both reformist and progressive scholars categorically say, reject the right, the right of husbands to hit their wives and reject, reject any interpretation of this, birth, of this verse that permits husbands to hit their wives. Um, but, the, but progressive scholars 
rely on the tradition to make this argument, which means that in many cases they're misrepresenting or misconstruing the tradition to make this argument. Whereas reformist scholars are willing to shift the locus of authority to the living community and say, you know what, we're not relying on the tradition for this because on this particular point, the tradition isn't offering us anything useful. Um, and they both privilege an egalitarian cosmology over a patriarchal one. They both believe that hus- that men and, wi- men and women, husbands and wives have independent relationships to God and they can a- aid each other in getting closer to God, but they can't actually, they don't actually mediate each other's relationship to God. So those are like in broad strokes what those yeah. four categories are. Um, so you also kind of outline, uh, and I guess this is kind of throughout, you don't necessarily yeah. do this in one place, some of the strategies that uh, progressives and reformists use. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so for example, you kind of talk about uh, the idea of a thematic reading mm-hmm. versus particular or mm-hmm. I forget. Uh, atomistic. How, yeah, yeah, atomistic uh-huh. is the word you uh-huh. use. Um, you also talk about uh, reading reading the Quran as uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive, mm-hmm. um, and then issues of translation. Can you kind of outline some of these strategies for how right. people are? Absolutely. This? I mean, ultimately, I think what I'm what I'm trying to do in that last chapter uh, is to show how malleable these sources are. That we think that the Quran says one thing, or the Hadith says one thing. So prophetic practice in the Quran and that they might say only one thing, that they might have one right and correct interpretation. But what I'm arguing is that, that, you know, I mean, and this is like following in the footsteps of people like Ibrahim Musa, where I'm arguing that texts mean what religious communities say they mean. They do not have independent meanings on their own. They don't speak for themselves. They don't have voices. Communities give them voices. And because the Muslim community is so large, um, the history of the Muslim community is so long, 1400 years, the community is so large, 1.3 billion people in the world. This necessarily means that different communities read this, read the Quran differently and they offer different interpretations for it and that the meanings of it, of the Quran are created and recreated in every iteration. And that actually believers have a choice when they're choosing an interpretation of the Quran. So when they, when, when people argue, you know, that the Quran permits husbands to hit their wives, even if it's only symbolically, they have a choice between that and an interpretation that's nonviolent. And I think what I'm most interested in in that chapter is to, I mean, going back to the beginning when I was talking about the first chapter, is to get the believing community to take responsibility for its own interpretations and the ones that they're willing to choose and, you know, speak at the pulpits and preach to the, the, the congregations. And, um, and, and so I talk about various hermeneutical strategies that you have, that, that, that Muslims have used, uh, in the past and in the present to make these interpretations. And I kind of, I really enjoyed that last chapter because I got to, I sort of was able to take a lot of the sources that I had talked about in the earlier chapters and like, for example, verses in the Quran that are used by, by pre-colonial scholars to argue for violent interpretations for 434. Those very same verses are then used by progressive and reformist Muslims read differently to promote a a nonviolent interpretation of 434. Um, I got to do that with prophetic reports as well. And it was, it was really exciting to be able to do, to do that. I mean, one example is a verse in the Quran that says that, um, the, the rights of husbands and wives are similar to each other. Um, but husbands rank, but husbands have a degree over, over, over their wives. And it's interesting because in the pre-modern period or the pre-colonial period, scholars would read that verse, would actually cite that verse and say, well, see, this means that husbands are kawamun, they're in authority over the, over women and this, and they have a degree over women. 
contemporary progressive and reformist scholars will read that same verse and say, see, husbands and wives have similar rights to each other. So they'll emphasize a different part of the verse to make a completely different argument. And what I'm arguing is that what, what matters most in, this interp- in these interpretive moves is the idealized cosmology that the reader brings to the text. What did they think the world should look like? And what does what is God like? What is what does God's justice mean in that idealized cosmology? So what's most important is to maintain this cosmology. So if husbands and wives are equal before God's eyes, then this 434 cannot be read in a way that prioritizes or privileges husbands or gives them any disciplinary rights over their wives. But if husbands rank over over of men rank over women and husbands rank over wives, then it makes complete sense to give them disciplinary privileges. So it's all about so I really think that Muslims have to take responsibility for the readings that they're choosing. Great. Well, we've really been busy. And uh, <laughs> thank you for, for making the time. Of course, thank uh, you. Before I let you go, though, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on or what projects you might have coming out in the future? Okay, so... Um, I'm working on enjoying my life a little bit right now, (laughs) but I do have a few uh, projects, you know, I have some articles that I'm writing. I am working on a policy piece, but the project that I'll talk about that's most interesting um, right now is I'm working on a co-authored work with two other scholars called uh, Difficult Texts or Difficult Women, and it's an interfaith reading that challenges patriarchal readings of the three traditions. So we look at themes like sex and death and money, wealth and tricks um, from the three traditions, from, the Judea- from Judaism, Christianity and Islam, and read texts like in a, in a parallel fashion in order to um, think about how feminists in each of these traditions resist the patriarchy of their traditions while also asserting the right to belong to those traditions and create meanings anew in those traditions. Well, we look forward to that and we'll have to have you back to talk to us. Okay, thank you so much. That was my conversation with Aisha Chaudhry about her great new book, Domestic Violence and the Islamic Tradition, Ethics, Law, and the Muslim Discourse on Gender, published by Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.